Well, if you go into a jewelry store and you look at the display cases, you know that many of them are lined with black velvet. And the reason for that is that that dark backdrop gives a, a great contrast and it allows the, the beauty of the jewels, especially the diamonds, to shine even more brightly against that darkness as the light reflects off them. As we turn in our Bible today to Acts chapter 11, what we're going to see is that the story that we're looking at is taking place against a very dark backdrop, which will allow the the beauty of the believers and the light of the gospel to shine even more brightly and to attract others to the good news of the gospel. So I invite you to look with me in your Bible at Acts chapter 11, where today I want us to pick up where we left off last time, starting in verse 19 through 21. It tells us, so then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, what's happening here is it's taking us back to Acts chapter 8. There you'll recall we saw where the first believer who was martyred was a man by the name of Stephen. And after his death, we were told in Acts 8.1 that on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So the believers, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, were, were, this is what was called the diaspora, the beginning of the scattering, were gone. The apostles stayed there at the heart, the birthplace of the church, but the rest of the believers were, were spreading out. We saw in Acts chapter 9 where some went to Damascus. Damascus was a city to the north of Jerusalem. And that's where a Pharisee by the name of Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, you recall, went there to to arrest the believers, to drag them back to Jerusalem. But as Saul was on his way to Damascus, the Lord intervened, and the resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ, appeared to him. And Saul became a believer in Jesus. And we saw there how Saul became uh, a, a Christian and was preaching the gospel, but he then was forced to flee the city of Damascus himself, and he went to a place called Tarsus. Uh, we're going to see later in this passage in Acts eleven twenty six, where Barnabas will go to Tarsus to bring Saul back to Antioch to help the believers in the church that's being started there. Now, when we talk about Antioch, it's important to point out that there are two of them that are mentioned in the Bible. This is a slide that shows Paul's first missionary journey that we're going to come to. And the arrow that you see up there in the area of Galatia points to Antioch Pisidian. And this was a small city in Asia Minor. This, there, there, the Antioch that we're talking about, you see where Tarsus is here along that road. Uh, this is Antioch of Syria. And this is the one that that where the story is taking place at the moment. You can see Jerusalem to the south. Jerusalem was 300 miles away, and there's Damascus where Paul, uh, where Saul went to persecute the Christians. So this gives you an idea of the spread of the gospel that is taking place out of the area of Jerusalem at this point. Now that city, Syria of Antioch, was located on a strategic trade route. And as a result, there were many people that that settled there. You had a city much like San Antonio. There were both retired and active military who lived in that city. There were merchants. There were sailors. One of the parts of the population that was significant were the Jews. 
And uh, you'll recall back in Acts 6.1, we talked about the Hellenistic Jews. Those were the Greek-speaking Jews. Those were those who were not native to the area of Jerusalem. And you'll recall that there was this uh, division in the church because these Greek-speaking Jews were being neglected, the widows. Well, when you come up here to Antioch of Syria, the language of that area was Greek. So they, they had synagogues, Greek-speaking synagogues, uh, as well as some Hebrew ones. So nobody was being neglected, but the, the main language of the day in this area was, was not Hebrew or Aramaic as it was down in Jerusalem. And this is important because as the gospel is spreading among the Jewish believers there, it's also the language of the day for the Gentiles who will be coming to faith in this area. Now, this city, Antioch of Syria, was, was an amazing city. Archaeologists love studying the area because this is where the architecture of Rome and Greece came together. You see, remember, Rome was in power at the time, and Antioch of Syria was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome was number one, Alexandria of Egypt was number two, and Antioch of Syria uh, had a population over a half a million people. That's a large city in our day. That was massive in the first century. And so this was an amazing city in so many ways. Uh, One of the archaeological features that they love studying there is there was a four-mile-long avenue, a main street in the city, that was paved with marble. And it had street lights that they used torches in that day. And there was even a covered avenue that went the entire area of that city. It was one of the most modern cities. They had features that we have in our day, like running water, through the uh, aqueducts, the Roman aqueduct that brought water into the city. It was also known for the massive wall that was around the city to protect it. It was over 60 feet high in places. It was so wide you could drive two chariots alongside uh, the circumference of the wall. If you ever saw the movie Ben-Hur and the famous chariot race, it gives you an idea of the, the breadth of the wall. Uh, Here's a statue that they've uncovered of a pagan goddess named Fortuna. That means fortune. And look at her crown because there you see the city wall featured. Uh, This was a a mark of Antioch of Syria. And you notice in her hand she's holding an abundance of food. They were a very prosperous city, not only in trade but in what was produced. So this was a, a very wealthy city. It had everything that you would think that you wanted, and with it came many things you didn't want. There was great debauchery. There was ritual prostitution with the pagan worship that took place there. There was a Roman writer by the name of Juvenal, and he said, the sewage of this Syrian city has long been discharged into the Tiber. Now, he's painting a picture because Rome was 1,300 miles away, so obviously any waste that came out of the city would not go into Rome. But he was speaking in terms of the moral corruption. Uh, It would be like saying Las Vegas in America, where we all know what that city can be famous for, how those morals, or better said, immorality, can be spread throughout society. And so this writer was complaining about how this decadent, wicked, and vile city was impacting even Rome uh, with the corruption of morals. So this is the backdrop. This is the darkness. You have persecution of the believers taking place. You have the story, the gospel spreading now into this very dark city. And uh, this is a prominent, prosperous, populous, and promiscuous city. And if you were going to reach into a place like that, what would be your strategy? 
Would you say, okay, we're going to come in and rent the arena. We're going to rent the AT&T Center, and we're going to bring in a big-name speaker. Let's get the Apostle Peter that we saw earlier in this chapter to come in. He'll be the headliner. We're going to have a massive crusade in the city to preach the gospel. Would that be your strategy? Well, look at how God chooses to reach into this city. He uses everyday people as they go about their daily lives. Verse 20 says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch, and they began speaking to the, to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, when you see that word preaching there in verse 20, this is the Greek word euangelizo. It's where we get our word evangelism. Uh, the word literally means to proclaim the good news. To proclaim the good news. We call the gospel, that's a word that means the good news. And what it says is, these men came into the city and they were preaching. Now, it's not what you're picturing right now where I'm behind a pulpit and I'm preaching to you. I'm sharing the good news this way. Uh, That wasn't how it was happening. The pulpits that these people used were their counters at work. They were going about their day-to-day lives and they were proclaiming the good news. They were coming alongside people in the city, and they were talking. Another word you see there in verse 20 is loleo. And this word means to speak or talk. And as they were, this was a word that was used of normal, everyday conversation. This wasn't where you would go and maybe knock on somebody's door and say, may I share something with you? This was, you're just talking to your friend. You're talking to your neighbor, a, a stranger you see on the street. And as you're having a conversation, uh, you begin to share the good news of the gospel through it. Uh, How many of us do that? As we think in terms of how we go through our day-to-day lives, uh, this isn't about being a holy roller where people see you come in and go, oh no, here, here she comes again, run. I mean, that's not what's happening here. What it is is as they're talking, they just have an opportunity where they say, hey, you know, I was at church on Sunday and I heard something really interesting. Or, uh, hey, my son or daughter is going to vacation Bible school. Or some other way that you just talk about what's going on in your life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if Jesus Christ is one of the most important things in your life, uh, shouldn't that just come up in our normal, everyday conversation with people? And this is what's happening. They were taking these opportunities as, as they came up. Now, another word that we see connected with sharing the good news of the gospel is the Greek word parakaleo. And this is a compound word. That first part, para, is a preposition. It means alongside of. And kaleo means to call. So it literally means to call alongside of you. And it was a, a word that we talked about back in Acts chapter 4. In Acts 4, 32 through 37, you'll recall we spent an extensive amount of time in that message dealing with a man by the name of Barnabas, who we're going to see later in this passage. So I'm not going to go back over all we talked about. If you missed that, that message, I encourage you to go online and, and listen to the sermon on Acts 4, 32 and following. But you'll remember that there we talked about Barnabas, uh, a name that is a nickname that literally means son of encouragement. And it's that word encourager, encouragement, parakaleo, uh, that speaks of who Barnabas was. And we saw how his ministry was to come alongside others. And he would encourage them. He would build them up. And so this is what we're reading about here. And as you think about people you know, people you see in your your day-to-day life, how many of them are weary? 
How many of them are beaten down? How many of them just look like they, they have the weight of the world? And they're just going through life. And, and we, this word parakaleo means to come alongside the person, to, to lift that load, to put an arm under theirs and, and support them and, and, and help them along the way. And this is what Barnabas is doing. And this is what we're called to do. And so as you think in terms of those who you know who may be facing a crisis or who are just weary in life, uh, it's in those times that we have an opportunity as believers to share a message of hope to share a message of encouragement, to say as tough as life is now, this isn't what it's all about. There's something greater ahead. And we get to point them to God, and we get to point them to, to God's message of hope, even in the world. The gospel isn't just for eternity. It's for what happens in our day-to-day life. One, one of the things I do outside of the doors of Wayside is I'm a police chaplain. Many of you know I was a police officer in Dallas before I was a pastor. And because of that, I have a heart for the men and women who serve. I, I know what they face on the street, all the, the garbage they deal with, all the tragedy that they deal with on a daily basis. And many of them have a need to be supported, to be encouraged. And um, just last week, two weeks ago, actually, I got a, a, a phone call here at the church and I serve in the chaplain's board for the Bear County Sheriff's, and I also work with the San Antonio Police, and I help our officers here in Castle Hills. And I received a call from the Castle Hills Police Department saying there's a, a neighboring jurisdiction in Chavano Park. Some of you live in Chavano Park. And they did not have a police chaplain. And the officers there were dealing with a the tragedy. They had been called out to the drowning of a two-year-old child who had fallen into a backyard pool. And the first on the scene officers began administering CPR and life support. There was even a, a doctor, a pediatrician who lived across the street who came over to help, and they were unable to save this, this baby. And these officers who had dealt with the situation, these officers who had tried to bring this baby back, obviously were, were hurting. And they said, we don't have anybody. Uh, could you come over? And so I went over at the end of shift and I met with the officers who had been on, on scene, uh, the patrol sergeant, this you know, veteran officer who had led the, the situation. They're, they're all there and, and I'm talking to these officers. And what they did was they paracaleoed. They said, we need somebody to come alongside. We need somebody to give support. We need somebody to help. And so the first thing I did just by showing up, uh, that's called a ministry of presence. And what that means is you're saying to the person, you're not alone. Uh, I care. I'm, I'm here just to help. And the way that you help initially is you just listen. You let those individuals vent. You let those individuals process. Uh, many times they're second-guessing themselves. What could we have done different? How could this outcome have been different? If only this or that. And it's in those moments you're not there to try to correct bad theology that they may have. It's not in those moments that you're there to try to fix things. Some of what you're doing is just listening. And then you see the opportunities that come as, as they kind of vent and the air goes out of the balloon. Then they need somebody to support them. And that's where you can then offer counsel from the word of God. And I was able to do that. And when I finished in that situation, this, this veteran patrol sergeant uh, said to me, he said, thank you. He said, some of the things I shared today, I've never told anybody. 
And, and that's what a, a ministry of coming alongside somebody is. Now, you may be sitting here saying, well, Roger, I wouldn't know the first thing to do. Uh, I'm glad you could go, but if they had called me, I would have said, I, I don't know what to do. Friends, the first thing you do is you just show up. Uh, have you ever read the book of Job? Have you ever seen where as Job was going through suffering and loss and everything that was happening, when were Job's friends most comforting? It's when they just sat there quiet, right? When they opened their mouths, it says Job wished they'd go away, right? <clears throat> so you may sit here and say, I don't know what to do. But what you do is you just paracaleo. You show up. And you say, you know, I'm just here to cry with you. I, I really don't know what to say, but I want you to know you're not alone. And then there will be opportunities. And the Spirit will lead you sometimes in what to say. This word parakaleo is the same word that we get paraclete from. You know who the paraclete is? That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. And he has not left us alone. The Bible tells us as Christians, it says, And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you in Corinthians? It tells us that we are not alone. God has given us the paraclete within us. And when we don't know what to say, when we don't know how to pray, when we don't know what to do, this is what Romans eight twenty six tells us. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You see, as believers, when we don't know what to do or say, God is, is talking through us, and he will help us in those times. Now, as these believers were there sharing God's word, remember, they were going through some deep waters and dark times. They were scattered because of the persecution. They've lost their homes, their livelihoods. Many of their families uh, have ostracized them if they were not Christians themselves. And so these are the, the men and women that are being scattered. And, and rather than going silent, rather than saying, let's just keep a low profile, blend in in this new city and not let anybody know we're Christians, what they did instead was they let their light shine in the darkness of their own experience, in the darkness of that vile city. And as they did so, the light was that much brighter. And it attracted people who said, we want to know about this this Christ, this Jesus you're following. Verse 21 says, a large number who believed turned to the Lord. History tells us that the believers there in Antioch had such an impact, not only in their day, but as you go forward just a, a couple hundred years. They're, they're around, you know, the middle of the first century here. So about 250 years or less forward at the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 325 AD, they said there were 200,000 Christians in Antioch. Remember, this was a city of about half a million. And now there are uh, almost two, there are 200,000. That's more than, you know, a quarter of the population of the city have now become believers in Jesus Christ. Because a handful of believers came into that city. And as they went about their day-to-day -day life, they led others to the Lord who led others to the Lord. And as this multiplication took place, uh, you see the impact that happened. 
As we look at verse 22, it says, The news about them reached to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Now remember, Jerusalem is 300 miles to the south, and in our day, 300 miles doesn't sound like that far, but that was a long, long way to travel in that day. So the, the impact of what's happening in this vile city, remember you have this Roman writer who's 1,300 miles away saying Antioch is corrupting the world. And down in Jerusalem, they're hearing, hey, Antioch is changing because of the believers. And the, the, the leaders of the church down in Jerusalem say, we, <laughs> we've got to figure out what's going on. We've got to get eyes on the situation, boots on the ground. So who do they send? They send Barnabas, this, this son of encouragement, this good and godly man, as we saw back in chapter 4. So Barnabas uh, is making the trip. Now, again, remember just how, how mind-blowing this is. Not only is this, this this vile pagan city that is suddenly being impacted by the gospel, but remember it's, it's the Gentiles. It's the Hellenistic Jews at, at the very best, but it's the Gentiles who are coming to faith. And back in Acts 11.3, we saw how when Peter was in a different Gentile city named Caesarea, he led Cornelius, that Roman centurion, to the Lord. Uh, it said Cornelius and his family and, and his friends came to the Lord. And do you remember how they reacted in Jerusalem? It said in Acts 11.3, when Peter shows up in Jerusalem, they confront him and they say, what are you doing? You were eating with the uncircumcised Gentiles. No, 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 this isn't right. And now they're hearing about thousands of Gentiles coming to the Lord. And so they're, they're, they're sitting here going, we don't know what's going on. We, we saw last week how Michael talked about how the whole paradigm of what they thought God wanted the church to do was being turned on its head. And so they say, okay, Barnabas, you go figure out what's going on and you tell us. Now, if you look at verse 19 that we opened with today, you see that some of them were still struggling to join in with what God was doing. There it said, some were speaking the word to no one except who? The Jews. So you had these Jewish believers from Jerusalem that were following Acts 1-8, spreading the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. But they were saying, oh, we only talk to the Jews about the good news. But then in verse 20, there were others who said, oh, no, we're going to talk to the Gentiles too. And so this is the, the, the rewriting of the paradigm that's happening. I just want to mention as a side note here, brothers and sisters in Christ, that sometimes you will face opposition for doing what God wants you to do. Not just from the world. That's a given. But how many times have you ever been doing what God wants you to do and you have other Christians who say, what are you doing? That's, that's not how we do things. Have you ever had that happen? I, I could show you the war wounds, but we'd be here all day <laughs> on that. And what happens is sometimes as believers, what we have to remember is just as a conductor turns his back on the crowd to lead, we as believers are sometimes told to turn our back on the crowd and to look at our sheet music, which is called the Bible. Yes, there are times to say to somebody, what are you doing? That's not in the Bible. But if the music we're following is God's word where he directs us to do something, then we need to do what God wants us to do and forego the applause of the crowd and instead seek the approval of an audience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, what is right is not always popular and what's popular is not always right. And there are times we have to say, I'm going to do what God says 
And that's what these believers were doing. There were some that were saying, the Holy Spirit has led us to share the gospel outside of the Jews to the Gentiles. And we see the impact taking place. Acts eleven twenty three through 24 says, when Barnabas arrived and he witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and he began to encourage them uh, all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So the son of encouragement shows up and what does he do? He encourages people. Keep going. Let's do it. And we're told he joins in with it. He doesn't just sit back. He joins in. And as he does so, God continues to multiply the impact of the church. It says even more are being brought to the Lord. Now, as he looks at what's happening, remember Barnabas is a native Jew. This is a a Jewish believer who's been raised in the law and all the traditions and everything. And he's willing to set aside uh, what he is used to in order to see God do new things. The Bible talks about putting new wine in new wineskins. And this is what's happening. And as it's taking place, uh, verse 24, we see he joins in and the success is ongoing. Now look at verse 25 through 26. It says, And Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. You remember Saul? The guy who persecuted the church in Damascus and had to flee? And it says, so he went to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and and taught considerable considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So what's happening is he's there in Syria, Antioch of Syria, and he goes to the city Tarsus, where Saul is. And he says, hey, I need you to come back. Uh, Barnabas had become the pastor of the church there. And the church is growing, great things are happening. But just as John the Baptist had said when uh, his disciples were were worried about people leaving uh, John the Baptist to follow Christ, you remember what he said? I must decrease and Christ must increase. And Barnabas, rather than saying, look, this is, this is my church, my, my name, I'm, I'm the guy, I'm going to hold on to everything. He says, I must decrease and Christ must increase. And if it means bringing in somebody else who's going to share the limelight, so be it. Remember, Saul was this brilliant Pharisee. He was a Torah scholar. He knew the law better than anybody. And Barnabas is dealing with Gentiles who were not raised uh, in the church, in, in the synagogues. They didn't know the law. And it, it says they're first called Christians there. So these people are becoming believers in Christ. And, and so what he's doing is he's saying they need a better foundation. And, and who's the best guy to teach? Well, it's this, this former Pharisee, this teacher of the law. So he brings in Saul, who will later become the Apostle Paul in, in, in name. And what he does is he says, I'm going to share the platform. And in fact, as we talked about back in Acts 4, 32 and following, we saw that there came a point where Paul eclipsed Barnabas. And that was okay with Barnabas because he said the gospel is going forward. People are coming to faith. People are growing and learning. And as we look at what's happening here, it says there, these guys are first called Christians. If you've ever wondered, where do we get this name Christian? Here it is in Antioch. Now, 
I want to just remind you of what we've seen in the book of Acts so far. There are many names that the believers were called. You see another one of them there. And the disciples, you know what the word disciple means? It means a follower, a learner. It's that Greek word mathetes. It literally means that we are a follower and we learn and we want to model our master, Jesus Christ. So this is another one of the names. Uh, in Acts 1.8, we saw they were called witnesses. Jesus said, you're to be my witnesses. And they were to go out and share the good news of the resurrection, tell people we have seen the resurrected Lord. This is what we have heard from him. This is what is happening. Uh, they're called brethren in Acts 1.16. We've been made a part of the family of God. If you were here on Easter, we talked about how that dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles was broken down. Brothers and sisters in Christ now in the church are Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. Uh, We've been reconciled to one another just as we've been reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They were called those who were being saved in Acts 2.47. Uh, We've been saved from the judgment we owe through the sacrifice of our Savior on the cross. Uh, We see in Acts 9-2 that they were called people of the way. This was a new way of living. This was a new road. Jesus Christ said in John 14-6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In uh, Acts 9-13, we're called saints. Now, if you were raised in a Catholic or Episcopal tradition, I was raised Catholic, and saints were those people who had been canonized, and they were these statues that you saw in the back of, of the, the church. That, that's not what saints mean. The, the word saints describes all of us who are here who are believers in Christ. The word literally means set apart. It means we've been set apart and we've called to be holy. That's what the word saints mean. So all of us here are saints. Uh, we see as well that now they're given this new title, Christians. You know, sometimes people think that the name uh, Christ is Jesus' last name. My last name is Poopart. Well, this is not Jesus Poopart. This isn't Jesus Christ. The word Christ is a messianic title. It literally means the Messiah. And so the people in Antioch see these believers who are following Christ And they say, we're going to call you guys Christians. Now, I want to tell you something, friends. That was not meant as a term of endearment. It was actually a slur. Uh, They attached the ending I-A-N. That's the Roman suffix that means belonging to the party of. Uh, So what they were saying is you are a part of the, the party of Christ. You are people who follow this one called Christ who you'll recall many people thought was a lunatic, a guy who was uh, crucified and died on a cross. And what they were saying is, you're living here in our our wonderful city, this massive, prosperous city, and you've come within the walls of our city, but you haven't haven't become one of us. You've set yourselves apart, and you're living differently than us. You're, You're not embracing our morals, or as we saw better said, their immorality. Uh, you're living differently than us. And so what they were doing is they were trying to shame the Christians. They were trying to say, we're going to, it was a a contemptuous title that they attached to them. And they said, we're going to call you guys and you ladies this title. And as you feel different, you're going to be ostracized and you're going to join us. Um, You know, history repeats itself, doesn't it? Is Christian uh, uh, an honorific title in our day? 
Or is it used to disparage people? How many times have you as a believer been made to feel that you're a fool? If you're in the worlds of uh, science or academia, you know that people label you as a Christian as you're some neophyte in your ability to think and reason. And they say, what are you, some, some fool, some idiot? I mean, do you really believe that stuff? I mean, evolutionists say, creation, what is that? There's no proof. If you're somebody who tries to think and, and, and use the Bible as a, a point of discussion, they say, do you really believe that fairy tale, that book? I mean, I thought you were smarter than that. I mean, the word Christian in our day is used in the same way it was in that day. They'll say, are you so narrow-minded that you believe there's really only one way to heaven? I mean, how dare you? How, how dare you be so exclusive? Have you ever faced that? That's what they were facing in Antioch. And that's what we face in our day more and more. In 1951, there was a psychologist by the name of Solomon Ash. And he set up a, an experiment to see, uh, we call it shaming in our day, but he wanted to see, can you force people to conform to group thought? And so what he did was he, he set up these experiments. My, my undergraduate degree is in psychology, so I used to run experiments like this at the University of Texas. And what would happen is you would have these sheets you put out in the hallway, and, and students taking classes had to sign up for a certain amount of experiments. Any of you have to do that? And so what you do is you put out these sheets and say, I need you know people. And so he, he seeded these sheets with uh, eight spots, and seven of them were already filled in with names of others, supposed they were students, but they were people who had already been brought in, and they were paid uh, associates, and they were told, you're going to pick a certain line in this experiment. And so here was the experiment he set up. Uh, there was a, a test line, A, that you see, and then there were three lines that were shown on these, uh, pla- on these placards back in the 1951 time period. And so as you look at these lines, you can tell one of them um, matches A, right? Well, you're sitting in a room with seven other people. You're the, you're the only real subject in the room. Seven of them are going to look at this and say, uh, D is the same length as A. And so you're the last person, right? Or sometimes he would make you the seventh person in there. And so the first person says, oh, D. Next person, oh yeah, D is the same. And you know, these subjects would be sitting there going, what? I mean, they even have pictures of these people peering at it going, what, what are you doing? And so they'd come to you and they'd say, well, which line? And you'd go, oh, well, yeah, I think D is the same as A, you know. What they found in doing this 50 times is 37 out of the 50 times the person went with the group. There were only 13 of the 50 subjects who said, no, I think it's B. If you were sitting there in the room, what would you have done? And you're saying, well, I'd have told them which one was right. (laughs) Is that what you do at work? Is that what you do at school? Is that what you do around the dinner table at a family gathering? When everybody starts trashing the Bible or how stupid Christians are or they go through all this, we want to conform, don't we? After the experiment, they interviewed the real subjects and they said, why did you choose that one? And, and the typical answer that was given is, well, I didn't want to be ridiculed. 
or I didn't want to be seen as peculiar. I didn't want people to think I was different. And these were with perfect strangers they had never met over something as simple as which line is longer. How many of us find ourselves caving in on our Christian faith at work, at school, the base we serve in, the places we are, because we don't want to be different? We don't want to be ridiculed. You know, what the Bible tells us in the book of Romans in 12.2 is, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And these were the Christians in Antioch. They were facing a society that said, you people are fools, you're Christians. And yet, rather than conforming to society, they let their light shine in the darkness. And what happened is they transformed the city. And they transformed the world. Because they let the truth of the gospel shine in the darkness. Verse 21 said, a large number believed and turned to the Lord. A few hundred years later, 200,000 in that city were now Christians. If you're willing to stand for your faith in the place that God has you, what kind of impact could you have? Could you change your school? Could you change your workplace, your family, some other setting that God has put you in? Friends, I've seen over and over how God will do that. I was the first one in my family of eight who became a believer. And all seven of my immediate family are believers in Christ. Two of them are home with the Lord now. I saw it in my high school. I saw it on my college campus. You want to talk about a little Christian school, the University of Texas up the road is is not really known for a place that's friendly to the gospel. I saw it when I worked summers in construction with the crews that I worked in. I saw it on the streets of Dallas as a cop, as I got mocked for my faith. But when there was a need, when there was a crisis, people would say, hey, Roger, can we go out after work and, you know, go to the bar and you tell me about this, this God of yours? I'd get a Dr. Pepper while they're drinking their beer or other stuff. You know, brothers and sisters, it's worth breathing an hour or two of secondhand smoke to save somebody from uh, smoke for all eternity, isn't it? As you think about where you are, what, what has God, what is your Antioch? Where has God placed you? And you may say, Roger, I'm in this, this dark place and I'm the only Christian. You know, as you start to let your light shine, you know what you often find out? There are other Christians who come out of the woodwork. And they're just looking for that man or woman to be the person who will be that anchor point, that person who's, who's willing to stand for the truth. And you can begin to, to build a community. And even if you're the only one, remember, you're not the only one because we have the paraclete, the Holy Spirit in us. He's already come alongside. He will strengthen and support us and tell us what we need to say in those times. Now, I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. I'm not telling you your impact will be instantaneous. But I'm telling you, as you continue to stand for the truth, as you let your light shine, it will begin to break through the darkness. As we look at the impact these believers are having in Antioch, it went beyond the borders of that city. It reached all the way back to Jerusalem, 300 miles to the south, the place where the church itself had been birthed. Look at verses 27 through 30. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem. They say down because it was a higher elevation coming coming down into Antioch. And so it says, one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the spirit that there would be 
there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Again, you want to talk about the truth of the Bible. Outside historians uh, verify these, this famine took place that's recorded in the scripture. And it says, in, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to and sent a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And they did this, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So they take up a collection there in Antioch and they send the resources down to Jerusalem. Now back in Acts chapter 2, we saw where one of the marks of the early church, that, that community, is those that had were selling what they had and sharing with those who were in need. This, this expands that paradigm where suddenly it's not just dealing with neighbors or other Jews that were around them. They're not only crossing geographical lines where they're saying, we're sending money to a far-off region, a far-off city, but they're also crossing uh, ethnic barriers. The Gentile believers are now sending money to the Jewish believers. Remember in Acts 11.3, the Jewish believers were saying, hey, don't even eat with those Gentiles. And now it's the money the Gentiles are sending that let the Jewish believers eat. Isn't that interesting? And so as we look at the gifts that were sent, it says each one gave according to his ability. Uh, you saw that we're having a question and answer time again today at 4 o'clock, and there's going to be prayer time at 3.30 before that in Fellowship Hall. And I encourage you to come and hear about this multi-site opportunity. But last Sunday in the first question and answer session, one of the people here said, uh, Roger, how much should we each give to this project? You know, the person wanted to know, are we going to divide up the population of Wayside and tax people, I guess? It wasn't quite that. But they were saying, how do we decide how much we're supposed to give? Well, friends, here is part of God's answer. If he asks you to be a part of this uh, opportunity, it's, it's not an equal amount from each person. It, God says that he's blessed different people different ways. And it says each person should give according to his or her ability. How have you been blessed? What could you do? Uh, there are other passages where God gives direction in how we're to give. One of those is in 1 Corinthians 16.2. There it says, On the first day of each week, every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. How many times have you been sitting in a service and suddenly the offering plate starts coming down the, the pew and you're, you panic? You're like, oh, um... And you open your wallet or purse and you go, let's see, which bill do I put in the offering plate? Or you just kind of say, well, if I just sit here long enough, it'll pass by, right? You know, but there's that moment of, do I give now? What the Bible says is we don't give out of a knee-jerk response. We should sit down and, and spend time thinking, praying, planning. If you're in a family, sit down with your family. Teach your kids, why do we give? How does mom and dad decide uh, to give? Use it as an opportunity to teach your, your, your children. Talk with your spouse. If you're a single person, sit down and, and determine what has God given me? What does he want me to do? You hear me talk about giving. Every time I talk about giving, I say this and I'll repeat it again today. If you do not want to give your money to God's work here at Wayside, then don't. Don't. Because another thing God says about giving is found in, first, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. There it says, each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly 
or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. You see, friends, God doesn't want you to give out of guilt or feeling this pressure. God says you give as he directs you to give. And so this, this is the principle of giving. Another principle of giving is found in Galatians 6.6. 6. There it says, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. That's how the, the gospel is supported. And the principle here is the Gentiles who were living up in Antioch, where did the church birth take place? Jerusalem. Where were the apostles, the, the first leaders of the church? They were in Jerusalem. And so what was happening is these Gentiles who had no physical connection geographically or ethnically said, we recognize that we are blessed and taught by the spiritual birthplace and we are going to support the ministry of those who are there. So this is, this is part of what's taking place. Today as Christians, we have the same privilege of taking place in God's work. It is a privilege, it is an honor that we get to have a part in it. Do you recognize, friends, that God doesn't need any of us? He really doesn't. The Bible says he owns a cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills. God can sell all the cattle and meet every need. But what he does is he gives us a privilege of being a part of his work. Now, as we think about what it means for us today, I want to end with a story for you. Uh, it's, It's a true story of something that took place in New York City. There was a a famous diamond dealer by the name of Harry Winston. And Winston had heard about a wealthy Dutch merchant. And this this merchant was seeking a special gem for his collection. And Winston said, I found the gem. I know know exactly what would complete your collection. So he contacts this man and he invites him to come to New York. So this guy shows up and Winston has given his best salesperson the, the, the job of presenting the stone to this merchant. And it tells us that as they sit down, he describes the expensive stone. He points out all the fine technical features. He talks about all, all the aspects of this diamond that make it so unique. And as the presentation concludes, this merchant, he's very impressed with the stone. He says, it's, it's a wonderful stone, but I, I think I'm going to pass. I don't want to buy it. Now, Winston had been standing nearby watching the whole presentation. And he walks up and he says, excuse me. He said, would you mind if I represent the stone to you? And the, the Dutch merchant goes, well, I've come a long way. Sure, I've got time before my flight. And so this time, Winston sits down with the same diamond. And as he presents the stone, uh, what he does, instead of talking about the technical features, he speaks spontaneously about his own genuine admiration for the diamond, what he loves about it, about the beauty, about the rarity. And is is it just gushing and exuding this genuineness of, of how great this stone is, the merchant abruptly changes his mind and he buys the diamond on the spot. Now, as this thing is being packaged and prepared for shipment, uh, the, the Dutch merchant says to Winston, he says, he says, I've got a question for you. He says, why is it I had no problem saying no to your salesman, but when you showed me the diamond, I, I couldn't resist, and I had to have it. And what Winston said is the, that salesman is, is one of the best men in the business. He knows more about diamonds than I do. And he said, I pay him a good salary for what he knows, but I would gladly pay him twice as much if I could put into him something that I have that he doesn't. He said, you see, he knows diamonds, but I love diamonds. 
He knows diamonds, but I love diamonds. As we talk about sharing our faith today, as we talk about letting our light shine in the darkness of the Antioch's where God has us, men and women, can I remind you that this is not about just communicating head knowledge, about winning an argument on technicalities, about showing people historically and other ways why the, the gospel is the truth. That's important stuff. But it's about letting our love of our Lord be seen. It's about letting the love that we have experienced be seen through our lives. Jesus Christ said in John thirteen thirty four and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also have love for one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Will you join me please as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you just for the story of the early church that shows us how we are living what they lived in that day. Some of the details are different, but Father, so many things are the same. And as we face the ridicule in our day, as we face the darkness in our day, as we uh, seek to communicate your love and the message of hope in the darkness of this world, would you, Lord God, who uh, loved us and gave us the good news of the gospel, would you let your light shine in and through us? Would we be men and women who not only share the good news with our lips, but would our lives reflect it? Would, Would people be able to see our love for one another and our love for you? And as we let that light shine in the darkness, We pray, God, that you would continue to draw men and women to yourself, that through us, through this church, through any means that you choose, Father, would you allow others to come to faith in Christ so that they too can become brethren, parts of the family, those who are saved, those who are following the right way, all the names that apply to us. Lord God, would we be those who bear the name of Christ? Would we go out into the world and while others may use the name Christian as a a slur or a mockery of us, would we wear it as what it is, a badge of honor, and let people know that we know our Savior and we want them to know him too. Send us out now, Lord. Use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.